Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome back to Most Amazing Top 10. I'm Rebecca Felgate and try as we may, all people want to talk about right now are the US presidential elections. Still, a lot of people think that Donald Trump will be a disaster. However, a lot of people think that he'll be a savior. Who knows? We need to let time do the talking, but for now, let's have a look at the top 10 presidents that were widely considered to be the worst in America's history. In at number 10, we have William Howard Taft, who was president between 1909 and 1913. President Taft organized the intervention and occupation of Nicaragua. He was also probably the sleepiest of presidents and was well known to doze off at public functions, including operas, church services, and funerals in general. His snoozy habits may have been because he was also in poor health, being obese at 350 pounds. He also reportedly got stuck in a bathtub at the White House. Of course, being in poor health doesn't necessarily make one a bad leader, but he did not set a good example for the ever-expanding waistlines of America in an era beginning to embrace fast food. In at number nine, we have Warren G. Harding, who was president yeah. between 1921 and 1923. So I'm not sure if you want your lasting legacy as president to be that you were exceptionally horny. Warren only served two and a half years as president due to his ultimate untimely death from a heart attack age 57. Because of his death, history often saves him from too much embarrassment. However, it has now proven that amongst his many affairs, he fathered a love child with Nan Britton whilst in office. President Harding was also at the forefront of the Teapot Dome scandal in which federal oil reserves were leased to big oil companies for the politicians' gain. Harding did have a lot of redeeming features too. He supported women's rights and equality for all races in America. So it wasn't all bad, but it's a shame his corruption makes it easy to overlook all of the good things. In at number eight, we have Millard Fillmore, who was president between 1850 and 1853. You can't blame a guy for trying. You can't blame someone for being an idealist, but you can blame someone for not standing up for what they believe in in the face of opposition. Despite being against slavery, to keep peace between the North and South, Fillmore passed the Compromise Act. This included the very controversial Fugitive Slave Act, wherein all escaped slaves would be forcibly returned to their masters. This was absolutely brutal and many considered it to be pandering to the South. Fillmore's actions postponed the Civil War, but did not get rid of the ill feeling on both sides. As he didn't address it, it had the chance to fester over 10 years. Ideally, a good president would address an issue, not delay dealing with them. This is, for example, why climate change is so important right now. In at number seven, we have Franklin Pierce. Pierce was a heavy drinker his whole life and made a string of questionable and often weak decisions. Although a northerner, he had southern ideology and was very pro-expansion and slavery. Pierce controversially revoked the Missouri Compromise and even tried to unsuccessfully annex Cuba. Like, leave Cuba alone. Although dogged by personal tragedy prior to his term as president, his questionable decision-making made him very unpopular and he was not nominated for a second term. Theodore Roosevelt even called Pierce a servile tool of men worse than himself ever ready to do any work the slavery leaders set him. In at number six, we have James Buchanan, who was president between 1857 and 1861. The problem with the 15th president of the United States was he had upheld slavery and was willing to go to unconstitutional lengths to make sure it stayed a non-federal debate. 
In the Dred Scott case, a case where a black slave was being hired out in a free state, Buchanan sympathized with the South and even persuaded Associate Justice Robert Cooper Greer to vote with the Southern justices. Buchanan's pressure on a member of sitting court was not right and it was not constitutional. On top of his inability to declare freedom for former slaves, he also did nothing about succession. In at number five, we have Herbert Hoover, who was president between 1929 and 1933. Prior to the election as Secretary of Commerce, Hoover had already proven he wasn't exactly a humanitarian. This was following his treatment of African Americans after the Mississippi floods. During Hoover's presidency, the US saw the stock market crash of 1929, followed by the Great Depression. While not totally responsible, Hoover had some responsibility in the matter. He was convinced the economic downturn would be short term. Instead, it lasted 10 years. He was also very involved in Mexican repatriation. In a misguided response to the Depression, Hoover was behind the repatriation, which saw the Midwestern and Southern Western cities force Mexican immigrants and their families to leave the US over concerns they were taking jobs away from whites, despite a legal right to stay. In at number four, we have John Tyler, who was president between 1841 and 1845. If this was a popularity contest, then John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, would definitely lose. John Tyler was hated by his entire party, which is always pretty awkward. Tyler was the first vice president to become president from succession after William Harrison died from pneumonia 30 days into his presidency. Once president, he pretty much went against everything his party stood for, including the National Bank. He fought an impeachment attempt and all but one of his cabinet quit. He was also into many of the deplorable things people thought were okay back then, including slavery. In at number three, we have Richard Nixon, who was president between 1969 and 1974. The 37th president of the United States, Richard Nixon, was the only president in history to resign. He did so because he did not want to face his impeachment trial, which would have held him accountable for the Watergate scandal. Very quickly, five burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee and were traced back to the Nixon administration. A Senate committee discovered that Nixon had various recording equipments and was recording some private conversations in the White House. The tapes were released to the Supreme Court, who then discovered that the president was trying to cover up the scandal. This led to the uncovering of multiple instances of abuse of power from Nixon and his team, which is absolutely not acceptable from a president. Despite the scandal which marred his presidency, he did actually do quite a lot of good. He pulled out of Vietnam, reopened good relations with China, he partly defused the nuclear arm race, he funded cancer research, he funded environmental research, and he also continued to end segregation. Just goes to show though, you will probably only be remembered by the bad things you do. In at number two, we have Andrew Jackson. Many far-right Republicans' argument for wanting to limit immigrants into the United States seems to stem from a concern that too many immigrants would change things, that their beliefs would impose on the already treasured current culture. A worrying thought indeed, but no different from the first few generations of Americans and their treatment of the Native Americans, the original dwellers of the land. Andrew Jackson was instrumental in America's expansion, but also in the murder and displacement of thousands of Native Americans. The United States' seventh president, Jackson, was a wealthy slave owner nicknamed the Indian. 
Indian killer. His administration removed 46,000 Native Americans from their homes. His displacement and inhumane handling of the Cherokee people was later dubbed the Trail of Tears. Interestingly, Jackson was also the founder of the Democrat Party, proving that the issues of slavery and Native Americans was non-partisan in that era. Here we are, we're at number one, and it is George W. Bush, who was president between 2001 and 2009. It's still very early to see how history will look upon George W. Bush. However, he has the lowest approval rating of any president. His approval rating was just 19% in 2008. George W. Bush had to deal with a lot. He was truly tested as a president by acts of terror as well as natural disasters. Had he not been tested this way, I imagine he would have been a reasonable president. But it is one's reaction in a time of crisis that defines who they are. Following 9-11, George W. Bush botched a case to invade Iraq and never found any weapons of mass destruction. He proudly claimed mission accomplished in 2003, but the war carried on for the best part of another 10 years. Not to mention the war set the groundwork for the creation of ISIS and more vehement extremist uprisings. He was in office as his soldiers were responsible for the inhumane treatment of Abu Ghraib. He also had a very underwhelming response to Hurricane Katrina, which of course prompted Kanye's live television attack. George W. Bush also put into effect the Patriot Act, which does have some benefits, but created a sneak and peek culture, meaning the US government has free reign to spy on people. As we said, time will tell with that one, but the death of half a million Iraqis and four and a half thousand US servicemen is quite the death toll to have on your decision-making hands. So that was the top 10 worst US presidents. Do you guys agree with this list? Let me know in the comments section down below. Also, no hate. This is a hate-free discussion. I'm Rebecca Fargate. This has been Most Amazing Top 10. If you like this video, make sure you give it a good thumbs up, share it with a friend, and of course, subscribe to Most Amazing Top 10. And I will see you next time. You're listening to Reason Talk Radio, One Reason Productions of Northern California. I'm your host, Rob Reason. It's Wake Up Wednesday. Be aware. Stay awake. Wake Up Wednesday covering current affairs, world news, community events. What you have to share about info sharing and things that's going on in your life or within and around and about you your town, your community, your state, what's your take on world issues today? What's on your mind about being aware of today on Reason Talk Radio? Once again, I'm your host, Rob Reason. It's Wake Up Wednesday. I'm your CEO, producer, and host. We have also special Joseph Youssef White, and in a few minutes, I'll be contacting him and seeing if he's going to be able to call in today and share what he's got going on. In the meanwhile, you can check him out on Facebook. That's Joseph Yusef White. Joseph Y-U-S-E-F Yusef White on Facebook, covering current affairs and many issues dealing with things we need to be aware of today. Creating think tanks online, collaboratively sharing information as it comes to us and inspires us to share with you. This is Reason Talk Radio. Also, be aware and tune in to One Reason TV covering real 
lifetime footage of different issues and things going on around the community here where we're based at in Lakeport, California at the time. We'll be covering some things in Sonoma County and Vallejo coming up soon. One love to you and yours. Thank you for logging in, checking in, tuning in, listening in, and calling in the Reason Talk Radio, the dates and times that you do. We love you back for your love and support. Believe that. Once again, it's Wake Up Wednesday, and it is May the 9th. 2018. Our chief sponsor of Reason Talk Radio and OneReasonProductions.com is Angelia Reason. More major sponsors via our iTunes podcast for Reason Talk Radio episodes include For Some, Mercedes Benz, Gap, Banana Republic, Xfinity, Macy's, Disneyland, and more. Not mentioning at this juncture right here today. We'll disclose some more later on when we check stats and disclose that for you. Proud to be getting close to the uh, 1,000 mark. We'll let you know just where that's at after today's episode when we disclose our world listener and download stats for Reason Talk Radio. Thank you once again for chiming in, participating, and supporting the way that you do. One love to you and yours. If you're traveling now, travel safe. I am pulling up to the studio right now as we speak, actually. So stay tuned. And I'm going to play some background things of uh, our local station here in Lakeport, California, KPFZ 88.1 FM. That's our local station, and we are grateful for them. One love. Here's some background to keep you on hold as I enter the studio premises and get into the lab and get with you live and direct. Reason Talk Radio. Reason Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio, one love to you and yours, that's the Ding Ding Bell. I am on the premises, so we're going to get to you in a moment uh, with some informative streams. Some, by request, will be uh, retakes or reruns of some uh, informative speakers and motivational speakers and things of such. So uh, hang with me. I am at the door now at the Higher Logic Project compound. And by the way, we will be playing some of their gay indie music as well, featuring Doobie Logic of the Higher Logic Project band here in Northern California. One love to you and yours. Thank you for logging in, checking in, tuning in. And listening in to Reason Talk Radio. I'm CEO, producer, and your host, Bob Reason. We're Angelia and Rob Reason of Northern California. We run OneReasonProductions.com on the web. When you visit us, use the number, not the word. Visit us at OneReasonProductions.com. We are here in the lab at the compound of the Higher Logic Project. One love to you and yours. Thank you once again for your love and support for us here at Reason Talk Radio. All right, we got some good things for you. It is 1.37 p.m., and uh, 
I mean, it is one hour and 36 minutes left in the program. I am sorry. It is 12.23 p.m. Pacific Standard Time here in Northern California. One love to you and yours. What's going on in the world today? What's your view? What's your perception? What's your take? What do you have to share about anything that's going on, current affairs-wise or whatever? Be awake. Stay aware. Are you aware of the times? Current affairs, info sharing, music, interviews, and you. Call 563-999-3469. Share your perceptions on air live with Reason Talk Radio. Call 563-999-3469. By request, playing the uh, via YouTube stream of uh, the information and talks forums about Donald Trump and dubious files. By request, reason talk radio. Go. Donald Trump promises America a golden future. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. But Trump's new presidency soon meets with heavy attacks. Vladimir Putin is said to have incriminating information about his personal and financial affairs. There are persistent rumors about financial connections with Russia. Fake news, according to Trump. I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. Why would Trump so vehemently deny any ties to the Russians? There is Russian money that may have um, sources that are scandalous. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. When Zembla investigates Trump's business partners, it comes across the Russian mafia. The threat said, if you don't drop the case now, you'll regret it. And we end up at Dutch trust offices that are involved in money laundering practices. Zegt u dat iets? Yeah. I believe we will have a very good relationship with Russia. I believe that I will have a very good relationship with Putin. Our investigation begins during the American election campaign, where it first becomes clear that there is a special connection between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. When I heard that, I thought, well, that's very unusual. That's almost an endorsement. Why would Vladimir Putin be endorsing Donald Trump? In Washington, we meet Malcolm Nance. Over the past 30 years, he has worked for various American intelligence services, including the CIA and the NSA. 
Nance has written a bestseller on manipulation of the presidential elections. Quotes from Putin and Trump have given rise to his investigation. And as soon as I saw that, I said, okay, we need to go backwards on this story. And I started looking into it, and his first contacts back in 2013 were amazing. His, his statements uh, for the Miss Universe pageant. Only one woman in the world will win and stand out above the rest to become Miss Universe. Welcome back to Miss Universe 2013, coming at you from Moscow. The big man on campus, Donald Trump. In 2013, Donald Trump takes his crown jewel to Moscow. At that point, he is owner of the Miss Universe pageant, which makes him millions. This will be a great one, there's no question, because of the fact that it's Miss Universe in Moscow. It's very special. Uh, this is going to be maybe the best we've ever had. We're very proud of it. To Trump, the pageant mainly seems an opportunity to make contacts with Russian billionaires, the oligarchs. But the biggest trophy is Vladimir Putin. A Trump tweet before the start of the beauty contest. Do you think Vladimir Putin will come to Miss Universe? Do you think he'll be my new best friend? He actually said these things, you know? And that's when he started asking questions. Like, hmm, that's very interesting. He's becoming Russia's candidate. After the pageant, this is what Trump says about Putin. I was in Moscow recently, and I spoke indirectly and directly with President Putin. Three years later, when he is running for office, Trump again reaches out to the Kremlin. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. When Trump made that statement on July 27th, he knew Russian intelligence was working for him in his favor. Trump's call to Putin occurs a few days after the publication of thousands of Democratic Party documents by WikiLeaks. According to the American intelligence services, the documents were stolen by Russian hackers. Sixteen agencies all came to the exact same conclusion that Donald Trump, the election hacking was done to make him president for Vladimir Putin. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't, maybe it was. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? Meanwhile, Congress has seven pending inquiries into the Russian interference in the elections. Still, Trump denies that the Kremlin has helped him become president. This is practically an act of war in the age of information, why isn't he demanding answers? But he's not. He doesn't want to know. Why does Donald Trump insist that he has no involvement with the Russians? We also ask Pulitzer Prize winner Michael D'Antonio. He has interviewed Donald Trump many times and wrote a best-selling book about him. It's likely that there is Russian money that's uh, flowed into Trump uh, organization entities in one way or another, and that some of this money may have um, sources that are scandalous and would be uh, posing a big problem for a president. And 
if the Russians have that information, it could be what they're holding over Trump. I put it this way. If you're a gambling addict and you owe someone a lot of money, you will never insult your bookie, right? According to Nance and D'Antonio, Trump is likely to have had a weak spot as a businessman that the Russians would have taken advantage of. I've made over $8 billion. Donald Trump likes to present himself as a successful and extremely rich entrepreneur. Generally speaking, if I put my name on something, you know it's going to be good. And it sells. But as it turns out, Trump is not at all that successful. In the 1990s, his casinos and real estate businesses go downhill. We're on our way to see James Henry, lawyer and economic investigator, and an expert in the field of tax evasion. He has a history of six bankruptcies in the 1990s, so none of the major New York banks would lend to him. Trump was pretty much unfinanceable. Henry has dug deep into Donald Trump's business contacts. According to him, since his bankruptcies, Trump has become dependent on shady cash flows. The only way that he was able uh, to finance his resurrection after 2000 um, was the torrent of money flowing out of Russia and the former Soviet Union countries like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. The uh, investors that he got at that point were looking for safe havens uh, or opportunities to launder money that it proceeds from basically criminal enterprises. Trump himself denies having any financial connections with Russia. So I tweeted out that I have no dealings with Russia. I have no deals in Russia. I have no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. Uh, and I have no loans with Russia. The thing to notice when Donald Trump talks about his relationship with Russia is that he always says, I have no business in Russia. He doesn't say that Russians have no business with me. Indeed, Trump does do business with Russian partners outside Russia, as his own son Donald Jr. said in 2008. Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets. We see a lot of money pouring in from Russia. And I thought at that time, this is very strange. You know, I've not heard anyone else talk about how Russians are investing in their real estate. This is a much older relationship than the Russians have actually developed with Trump that may well go back to the 1980s. Really? Yeah, because Donald's first trip to Moscow uh, was <laughs> in July 1987. In the 1990s, under the Boris Yeltsin administration, Russia finds itself in a deep economic crisis. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the state-owned businesses and the many mineral resources are sold for a song to a small group of corrupt insiders, the oligarchs. The rest of the people live in poverty. That's why there was such a demand for Putin at the end of this period. When Vladimir Putin takes office, Russia becomes an increasingly authoritarian state. 
Putin tightens the reins. From now on, he decides what happens to Russia's wealth. A lot of these very wealthy oligarchs began to put money abroad, financing um, people like Trump. And there was also an explosion of crime coming out of uh, uh, Russia, organized crime, which it's pretty hard to disentangle the organized crime aspects of this story from the oligarchs because if you got to be a multi-billionaire, you didn't do that uh, in Russia without help from you know, some fairly tough people. I think it needs to be discovered exactly what these relationships are, why so many of these people would want to pour money into Trump properties. Who are Trump's financial backers? To find out, we visit this New York building. Trump Soho, 46 floors of luxury apartments. To get it off the ground, Donald Trump works together with another real estate company, Bayrock. I think in the case of Bayrock, we have a company um, that is led by people who have extremely shadowy backgrounds and profiles. Who are the people behind Bayrock? And where does the money come from that was used to build Trump Soho? In a minute, we'll show that Bayrock has connections with the Russian mafia. That one of the owners is allegedly involved in the prostitution of minors. And that Bayrock is setting up shady businesses in the Netherlands. We discover that there is a lawsuit pending in New York against Bayrock. The company is accused of large-scale tax fraud. We want to know more. We make an appointment with the man who is prosecuting the case against Bayrock for the state of New York. Fraud expert and lawyer, Fred Oberlander. Anybody running a business through a pattern of crime is guilty of racketeering. Anybody knowing what they're doing and helping him is guilty of racketeering conspiracy. They go to jail, and anybody injured by what they did can sue for triple damages. We delve into the history of Bayrock and end up with this businessman, Tafik Arif from Kazakhstan. Arif's family have made their fortune in the chromium industry. In 2001, he sets up Bayrock. He certainly was a figurehead for the company, okay? And from everything I know, he was the source of all of its seed capital. As it turns out, Tafik Arif is a hotel magnate. Confidential documents from Arif show that he uses complicated structures to run his hotels through companies in the Netherlands. You're dealing with people that seem to be involved in a worldwide network of shell companies, money moving around. In New York, Ari finds the perfect business partner, Donald Trump. Trump promoted himself as a larger-than-life real estate developer. so. We have this new player in real estate probably um, funneling money from Russian oligarchs into the American market, but needing a partner 
who was impressive and brought value of his own. Bayrock sets up business at the heart of Donald Trump's entrepreneurial empire, Trump Tower in New York. It seems a match made in heaven. Bayrock has the cash. Trump has the name. He even has his own television show, The Apprentice. In that show, we can see him put Trump Soho in the spotlight for the first time. Soho, here it is. The Trump International Hotel and Tower in Soho is the site of my latest development. This 50-story building will be the first condominium hotel in the city with world-class accommodations and panoramic views. Trump and Bayrock jointly own Trump Soho. Under American law, that means that Donald Trump is jointly responsible for all the business decisions made. Does Trump know who he's teaming up with? Internal Bayrock emails show that in addition to Arif, there is another owner, Felix Sater. Who is Felix Sater? He was born in Russia in 1966. Uh, came to Brooklyn in the 1970s with his father, who was uh, named Mikhail Shefirovsky, changed his name to Sater, and was called by the FBI a uh, syndicate crime boss for Simeon Mogilevich's uh, uh, Moscow organized crime family. Felix Sater's father is a mafia boss who works for one of the most infamous Russian criminals, Simeon Mogilevich. According to an FBI director in a CNN interview, he has been in the top 10 of the most wanted list for years. Bogulevich is a, is a very high-profile international organized crime figure. He's a man of a great deal of means, and we have every reason to believe that while he's based out of Russia at the moment, he could possibly be traveling uh, under false identification using aliases throughout the world. Bogulevich is considered responsible for numerous murders. This is him in a BBC interview 20 years ago. Did you have anything to do with his murder? Interestingly, over the past few years, at least three of Mogilevich's gang members lived at Trump Tower or bought apartments there. Some of the leaders of the gang are arrested and convicted. Felix's father is also arrested for extortion he uses violence to force Brooklyn entrepreneurs to pay him. So that was Felix's father. In 1991, uh, Felix was convicted of stabbing somebody with a, a uh, margarita glass in a bar fight. After the stabbing, Felix Sater is arrested and put behind bars. He seems to be following in his father's criminal footsteps. And then he becomes involved in financial fraud, and he has a $40 million scheme in pumping penny stocks. Fraud and deception. Sater proves to be good at it. He works together with a group of mafia members, artificially driving up the value of shares by providing false information. The FBI traces him, but Sater flees to Russia. When he returns to New York, he still stands trial. But then, something strange happens. He is basically on the verge of pleading guilty uh, to those offenses, but he does a deal. Sater closes a deal. 
he becomes an FBI informant. He avoids punishment by turning on his accomplices. Supposedly, this has landed dozens of mafia members behind bars. And that's not all. Sater is also said to have helped American intelligence services. Some say that he went back to the former Soviet Union and at that point uh, provided some information about Stinger missiles that were being sold to the Afghan Taliban. In exchange for the information, Sater stays out of jail. In fact, the American government covers up the court transcripts about the fraud. Shortly thereafter, Sater reappears in the real estate company of Bayrock. In an interview with a Russian magazine, he says, I became a managing director of Bayrock. We had an office at Trump Tower, one floor below Trump's. As the court transcripts about Sater's fraud are sealed, he can simply move on to business as usual. Banks and investors in Bayrock do not find out anything about his criminal past. When you are running a business secretly controlled by Russian mafia, you got a whole lot of problems. Not a lot of banks are going to want to lend to a business run by the Russian mafia. So your number one objective is going to be cover it up. Oberlander says that by keeping Sater's past a secret, Bayrock is committing a felony. It isn't legal to run a business where you hide the fact that the biggest owner, or one of the biggest owners, is a convicted mobster. The maximum jail term would be 30 years. So you're in really serious trouble. We are in possession of internal Bayrock emails from 2007. They show that the company itself is indeed aware of Sater's crimes. For example, the legal counsel writes about the risk that Felix's past will be uncovered. Furthermore, he wants Sater's name removed from the documents. Felix Sater goes far to keep his secret. A Bayrock employee tells the lawyer Oberlander that he is being threatened by Sater. He said, how many times Sater threatened to kill me? He threatened to stab me in the throat. If I ever talked, he threatened people all over the place at Bayrock if they ever talked. Oberlander tells us that he himself is being threatened by one of Sater's associates as well. The threat said, if you don't drop the case now, you'll regret it. An investor in a Bayrock project accuses the company of embezzlement. He swears that Sater has threatened to administer electrical shocks to his genitalia, to cut off his legs, and to leave his dead body in the trunk of his car. Of course, we are anxious to know how Felix Sater himself looks back on his past. We go to Port Washington, an hour's drive from New York. We have a couple of addresses where we might find Sater. I'm looking for Felix Sater. Do you know him? If anything would be, no, I don't know. If anything would be that way. That way? Yeah, one hundred nine. That way. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Let's see. Got to be down that way a little. Okay. Bit. It has to be that side of the street then. On that side, right? Okay. Because that's the odd side. Okay. Thank you. This is supposed to be one of Sater's business addresses, but the place looks closed. It's been a long time since the mailbox was last emptied. 
Back in New York, we do find an address for Bayrock. The company is no longer active, but is still registered to the former legal counsel, a Mr. Julius Schwartz. But Schwartz is not in, and no one is willing to talk to us. Meanwhile, hearings are being conducted in Congress about the Russian interference in the presidential elections. The director of the FBI is making a statement. The congressmen want to know if he has information about Felix Sater. Director, are you aware of Felix Sater, a former Soviet official and advisor to the Trump Organization? I'm not going to comment on that. And Director, outside of Mr. Sater's relationship with the Trump Organization, are you aware that the FBI knew of Mr. Sater because of a $40 million stock fraud case that was prosecuted by the federal government? Same answer. What did Donald Trump know about Felix Sater's crimes and his position at Bayrock? If Trump has kept Sater's criminal past a secret, he is an accessory to fraud and deception, says Oberlander. If I can show that Donald Trump at some point knew the truth about the crimes at Bayrock, or even some of them, and kept on helping Bayrock's businesses while knowing that it has been engaged and is continuing to engage in crime, that's it, goodbye, good luck. So, if Trump knew about the shady background of his business partners, that could have huge consequences. What information did Trump have anyway? In 2007, the New York Times publishes an article on Sater and his crimes. So from then on, Donald Trump has to have been aware of them. And he said, I'm going to tell you this much, I guarantee you, I'm going to get to the bottom of this really fast, really fast. Trump promises to get to the bottom of the whole story of Sater and Bayrock. A meeting is called. We discover that the meeting is attended by the Bayrock management, as well as virtually the entire Trump family. They're all coming. Trump, Trump Jr., Eric, Ivanka, every lawyer on the planet. They're all coming. But Donald Trump does not seem to intend to cut the ties to Bayrock. In fact, we can read that he uses the situation to demand more money for himself. Sater emails that Trump is happy with him. But in his external communications, Donald Trump acts as if he hardly knows anything of Sater's history, as becomes clear during a BBC interview. Why didn't you go to Felix Sater and say, you're connected with the Mafia, you're fired. Well, first of all, we were not the developer there. That was a licensing deal. But uh, your name was on it. A very simple licensing deal. Much but your name's on it, Mr. Trump. Excuse me, but I don't know. You're telling me things that I don't even know about. He was connected with the Mafia. Again, John, maybe you're thick, but when you have a signed contract, you can't, in this country, just break it. And by the way, John, I hate to do this, but I do have that big group of people waiting, so I have to Okay, now hold on. One last question, please, sir. I have to leave. Um, Thank you. A few months later, Trump is again confronted with Sater. He has to give a statement under oath in a lawsuit about a real estate project. 
About how many times have you have you conversed with Mr. Sater? Over the years? Over the years, if you could ask. Not me. many. Not many. If he were sitting in the room right now, I, I really wouldn't know what he looked like. Okay. This time, Trump says he wouldn't even recognize Sater if he bumped into him in the street. That's strange, because after leaving Bayrock, Sater becomes one of Trump's advisors. He is given a business card from Trump's company, a telephone number, and an office close to that of Trump. It's an intriguing question. Why does Trump continue to do business with Sater and Bayrock? I think there's almost a thrill that he felt dealing with people who are willing to do things that others weren't willing to do, to act tough, to um, enjoy the suggestion that they're to be feared. Bayrock and Trump have ambitious $2 billion building plans. So they need investors. Investors who are willing to invest millions in the real estate projects. Who are these financiers? In a Bayrock presentation, we find this company, FL Group from Iceland. It turns out to be one of Bayrock's strategic partners. It turned out that FL Group uh, was at one point, 2006, the largest private equity investment firm uh, in Iceland, that it had a lot of connections to uh, the other big banks in Iceland. In the court transcripts, we can read that FL Group is backed by Russian investors that are said to be Vladimir Putin's supporters. There was a number of allegations I heard that the FL Group was a major conduit for finance from Kazakhstan or from former Soviet Union. We do see FL Group making loans uh, to people connected to the Mogilevich Group. The records show that FL Group and Bayrock enter into an investment agreement. But we also read that there is a secret plan. FL and Bayrock are said to be planning a $250 million tax fraud together. All the partners have to approve the official agreement. Donald Trump also signs to indicate his approval. The truth is, it never would have closed if he didn't sign off on it. End of story. And I'm pretty certain that he knew that that was the case. Trump himself says he had no idea that this was a fraudulent transaction. I have concluded without any question that Donald Trump may be credibly charged with participating in a racketeering conspiracy based on what happened at Bayrock. Another strategic partner of Bayrock and Trump's comes up in the list of key investors. Alexander Moscovich, a Kazakh billionaire, Moscovich is a friend of Tafik Arif, managing director of Bayrock, another Kazakh. Moscovich is known to have been uh, running a lot of the chromium uh, uh, mining industry within Kazakhstan. And um, the Arif family was, of course, uh, then uh, running the processing of uh, chromium. We meet with Michael Byrd, a British investigative reporter. He has conducted an extensive investigation into Moscovich and Arif. In the uh, late 90s and the early 2000s, when the Arif family developed a lot of hotels and went into the US real estate market, 
certainly um, it seems that, the, that Mashkevich needed someone there on the ground in New York to uh, be the public face of a lot of the uh, developments that, that were happening there. And Tevfik uh, very much fitted that role. The oligarch Muscovich is one of the owners of the Eurasian Resources Group, a Kazakh mining multinational. He is also a leader of the Jewish community. Everything what I do, what everything I did, and I hope what I will do, I do this from my heart. Because, because I believe what I do. This sounds good, but this Bayrock business partner, too, comes with a questionable reputation. Moscovich's company has been the subject of investigations into money laundering and corruption for years. In 2010, Moscovich and his friend Arif make negative headlines. Savoronadaki operasyonla ortaya çıkarılan fuhuş çetesinin liderinin Kazak asıllı milyarder iş adamı Tevfik Arif olduğu iddia edildi. Amerikalı ünlü iş adamı Donald Trump'ın da ortaklarında. It's June 28, 2010. A Turkish SWAT team enter a luxurious yacht in the port of Antalya. According to this Turkish police report, there are young Russian prostitutes on board that are said to be the victims of human trafficking. In the report, we find the names of Tevfik Arif and Alexander Moskovich. Alexander Mashkevich had asked his friend Tefik Arif to organize a party, and that party uh, involved uh, nine Russian models who were brought over to the yacht. Arif is supposedly using the sex party on the ship to close lucrative deals with foreign business partners. The Turkish police were investigating a sex trafficking scandal because what had happened in the earlier that year, in 2010, is that um, people close to Tevfik Arif had brought in girls as young as 15 from Russia to Turkey to their hotels. So, Tevfik Arif is suspected of human trafficking of underage girls that are said to be prostituted at his hotels. Arif also rounds up the nine women on the ship. They are adults. The women refuse to give a statement. Alexander Moscovich, who had rented the yacht, manages to get out of the country. Certainly, it seems that he used his connections to, to get out of the country at that point. He didn't uh, face arrest, um, and neither did his colleagues. The only person who faced arrest was Tefik Arif. But Tefik Arif, founder of Bayrock, is acquitted. Only two of his associates are found guilty of human trafficking. How much money has Alexander Moscovich invested in Bayrock? We see he has all kinds of companies in the Netherlands. One of these companies, ERG, turns out to have a major branch in Amsterdam. We visit their office. Once inside, we are told that this is the financial heart of ERG, Moscovich's company. So, any payments to Bayrock may have been arranged through this office.
Back in Washington, Congress is investigating Trump's Russian connections. One of the Democratic congressmen involved in the investigation is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. There needs to be a proper balance, and that proper balance has been lost uh, in the route of corporate power that my book documents. We attend a speech given by Whitehouse on a new book that he has written. It's about the corrupting influence of large corporations on politics. What is the danger of having a president holding ties to Russian oligarchs, even maybe involved in deals concerning money laundering and tax evasion? The um, danger is that it plays into a well-established Russian toolbox of foreign influence. One of the ways in which the Russian government manipulates governments around it First, the old Soviet republics, and now Europe, your country, and in the last election, America, is to build a network of people whom they can control. And the traditional method is to find somebody who has uh, somewhat slippery. Donald Trump promises America a golden future. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. But Trump's new presidency soon meets with heavy attacks. Vladimir Putin is said to have incriminating information about his personal and financial affairs. There are persistent rumors about financial connections with Russia. Fake news, according to Trump. I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. I don't have any deals in Russia. Why would Trump so vehemently deny any ties to the Russians? There is Russian money that may have um, sources that are scandalous. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. When Zembla investigates Trump's business partners, it comes across the Russian mafia. The threat said, if you don't drop the case now, you'll regret it. And we end up at Dutch trust offices that are involved in money laundering practices. Yeah. I believe we will have a very good relationship with Russia. I believe that I will have a very good relationship with Putin. Our investigation begins during the American election campaign, where it first becomes clear that there is a special connection between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. When I heard that, I thought, well, that's very unusual. That's almost an endorsement. 
Why would Vladimir Putin be endorsing Donald Trump? In Washington, we meet Malcolm Nance. Over the past 30 years, he has worked for various American intelligence services, including the CIA and the NSA. Nance has written a bestseller on manipulation of the presidential elections. Quotes from Putin and Trump have given rise to his investigation. And as soon as I saw that, I said, okay, we need to go backwards on this story. And I started looking into it. And his first contacts back in 2013 were amazing. His, his statements uh, for the Miss Universe pageant. Only one woman in the world will win and stand out above the rest to become Miss Universe. Welcome back to Miss Universe 2013 coming at you from Moscow. The big man on campus, Donald Trump. In 2013, Donald Trump takes his crown jewel to Moscow. At that point, he is owner of the Miss Universe pageant, which makes him millions. This will be a great one, there's no question, because of the fact that it's Miss Universe in Moscow. It's very special. Uh, this is going to be maybe the best we've ever had. We're very proud of it. To Trump, the pageant mainly seems an opportunity to make contacts with Russian billionaires, the oligarchs. But the biggest trophy is Vladimir Putin, a Trump tweet before the start of the beauty contest. Do you think Vladimir Putin will come to Miss Universe? Do you think he'll be my new best friend? He actually said these things, you know? And that's when he started asking questions, like, hmm, that's very interesting. He's becoming Russia's candidate. After the pageant, this is what Trump says about Putin. I was in Moscow recently, and I spoke indirectly and directly with President Putin. Three years later, when he is running for office, Trump again reaches out to the Kremlin. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. When Trump made that statement on July 27th, he knew Russian intelligence was working for him in his favor. Trump's call to Putin occurs a few days after the publication of thousands of Democratic Party documents by WikiLeaks. According to the American intelligence services, the documents were stolen by Russian hackers. Sixteen agencies all came to the exact same conclusion that Donald Trump, the election hacking was done to make him president for Vladimir Putin. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't, maybe it was. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? Meanwhile, Congress has seven pending inquiries into the Russian interference in the elections. Still, Trump denies that the Kremlin has helped him become president. This is practically an act of war in the age of information, why isn't he demanding answers? But he's not. He doesn't want to know. Why does Donald Trump insist that he has no involvement with the Russians? We also ask Pulitzer Prize winner Michael D'Antonio. He has interviewed Donald Trump many times and wrote a best-selling book about him. It's likely that there is Russian money that's uh, flowed into Trump 
uh, organization entities in one way or another, and that some of this money may have um, sources that are scandalous and would be uh, posing a big problem for a president. And if the Russians have that information, it could be what they're holding over Trump. I put it this way. If you're a gambling addict and you owe someone a lot of money, you will never insult your bookie, right? According to Nance and D'Antonio, Trump is likely to have had a weak spot as a businessman that the Russians would have taken advantage of. I've made over $8 billion. Donald Trump likes to present himself as a successful and extremely rich entrepreneur. Generally speaking, if I put my name on something, you know it's going to be good. And it sells. But as it turns out, Trump is not at all that successful. In the 1990s, his casinos and real estate businesses go downhill. We're on our way to see James Henry, lawyer and economic investigator, and an expert in the field of tax evasion. He has a history of six bankruptcies in the 1990s, so none of the major New York banks would lend to him. Trump was pretty much unfinanceable. Henry has dug deep into Donald Trump's business contacts. According to him, since his bankruptcies, Trump has become dependent on shady cash flows. The only way that he was able uh, to finance his resurrection after 2000 um, was the torrent of money flowing out of Russia and the former Soviet Union countries like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. The uh, investors that he got at that point were looking for safe havens uh, or opportunities to launder money that it proceeds from basically criminal enterprises. Trump himself denies having any financial connections with Russia. So I tweeted out that I have no dealings with Russia. I have no deals in Russia. I have no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. Uh, and I have no loans with Russia. The thing to notice when Donald Trump talks about his relationship with Russia is that he always says, I have no business in Russia. He doesn't say that Russians have no business with me. Indeed, Trump does do business with Russian partners outside Russia, as his own son Donald Jr. said in 2008. Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets. We see a lot of money pouring in from Russia. And I thought at that time, this is very strange. You know, I've not heard anyone else talk about how Russians are investing in their real estate. This is a much older relationship than the Russians have actually developed with Trump that may well go back to the 1980s. Really? Yeah, because Donald's first trip to Moscow uh, was <laughs> in July 1987. In the 1990s, under the Boris Yeltsin administration, Russia finds itself in a deep economic crisis. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the state-owned businesses and the many mineral resources are sold for a song to a small group of corrupt insiders, the oligarchs. The rest of the people live in poverty. 
That's why there was such a demand for Putin at the end of this period. When Vladimir Putin takes office, Russia becomes an increasingly authoritarian state. Putin tightens the reins. From now on, he decides what happens to Russia's wealth. A lot of these very wealthy oligarchs began to put money abroad, financing um, people like Trump. And there was also an explosion of crime coming out of uh, uh, Russia, organized crime, which it's pretty hard to disentangle the organized crime aspects of this story from the oligarchs because if you got to be a multi-billionaire, you didn't do that uh, in Russia without help from you know, some fairly tough people. I think it needs to be discovered exactly what these relationships are, why so many of these people would want to pour money into Trump properties. Who are Trump's financial backers? To find out, we visit this New York building. Trump Soho, 46 floors of luxury apartments. To get it off the ground, Donald Trump works together with another real estate company, Bayrock. I think in the case of Bayrock, we have a company um, that is led by people who have extremely shadowy backgrounds and profiles. Who are the people behind Bayrock? And where does the money come from that was used to build Trump Soho? In a minute, we'll show that Bayrock has connections with the Russian mafia. That one of the owners is allegedly involved in the prostitution of minors. And that Bayrock is setting up shady businesses in the Netherlands. Twee bedrijven voor hen hier in Nederland uh, opgericht. Dus niet zo dat ik het dan zo herinner op de vastdagen werken, dat soort dingen. We discover that there is a lawsuit pending in New York against Bayrock. The company is accused of large-scale tax fraud. We want to know more. We make an appointment with the man who is prosecuting the case against Bayrock for the state of New York fraud expert and lawyer, Fred Oberlander. Anybody running a business through a pattern of crime is guilty of racketeering. Anybody knowing what they're doing and helping him is guilty of racketeering conspiracy. They go to jail, and anybody injured by what they did can sue for triple damages. We delve into the history of Bayrock and end up with this businessman, Tafik Arif from Kazakhstan. Arif's family have made their fortune in the chromium industry. In 2001, he sets up Bayrock. He certainly was a figurehead for the company, okay? And from everything I know, he was the source of all of its seed capital. As it turns out, Tafik Arif is a hotel magnate. Confidential documents from Arif show that he uses complicated structures to run his hotels through companies in the Netherlands. You're dealing with people that seem to be involved in a worldwide network of shell companies, money moving around. In New York, Ari finds the perfect business partner, Donald Trump. Trump promoted himself as a larger than life real estate developer 
So we have this new player in real estate probably um, funneling money from Russian oligarchs into the American market, but needing a partner who was impressive and brought value of his own. Bayrock sets up business at the heart of Donald Trump's entrepreneurial empire, Trump Tower in New York. It seems a match made in heaven. Bayrock has the cash. Trump has the name. He even has his own television show, The Apprentice. In that show, we can see him put Trump Soho in the spotlight for the first time. Soho, here it is. The Trump International Hotel and Tower in Soho is the site of my latest development. This 50-story building will be the first condominium hotel in the city with world-class accommodations and panoramic views. Trump and Bayrock jointly own Trump Soho. Under American law, that means that Donald Trump is jointly responsible for all the business decisions made. Does Trump know who he's teaming up with? Internal Bayrock emails show that in addition to Arif, there is another owner, Felix Sater. Who is Felix Sater? He was born in Russia in 1966, uh, came to Brooklyn in the 1970s with his father, who was uh, named Mikhail Shefirovsky, changed his name to Sater, and was called by the FBI a uh, syndicate crime boss for Simeon Mogilevich's uh, uh, Moscow organized crime family. Felix Sater's father is a mafia boss who works for one of the most infamous Russian criminals, Semyon Mogilevich. According to an FBI director in a CNN interview, he has been in the top 10 of the most wanted list for years. Mogilevich is a, is a very high-profile international organized crime figure. He's a man of a great deal of means, and we have every reason to believe that while he's based out of Russia at the moment, he could possibly be traveling uh, under false identification using aliases throughout the world. Mogilevich is considered responsible for numerous murders. This is him in a BBC interview 20 years ago. Did you have anything to do with his murder? Interestingly, over the past few years, at least three of Mogilevich's gang members lived at Trump Tower or bought apartments there. Some of the leaders of the gang are arrested and convicted. Felix's father is also arrested for extortion. He uses violence to force Brooklyn entrepreneurs to pay him. So that was Felix's father. In 1991, uh, Felix was convicted of stabbing somebody with a, a uh, margarita glass in a bar fight. After the stabbing, Felix Sater is arrested and put behind bars. He seems to be following in his father's criminal footsteps. And then he becomes involved in financial fraud and he has a $40 million scheme in pumping penny stocks. Fraud and deception. Sater proves to be good at it. He works together with a group of mafia members, artificially driving up the value of shares by providing false information. The FBI traces him, but Sater flees to Russia. When he returns to New York, 
He still stands trial. But then, something strange happens. He is basically on the verge of pleading guilty uh, to those offenses, but he does a deal. Sater closes a deal. He becomes an FBI informant. He avoids punishment by turning on his accomplices. Supposedly, this has landed dozens of mafia members behind bars. And that's not all. Sater is also said to have helped American intelligence services. Some say that he went back to the former Soviet Union and at that point uh, provided some information about Stinger missiles that were being sold to the Afghan Taliban. In exchange for the information, Sater stays out of jail. In fact, the American government covers up the court transcripts about the fraud. Shortly thereafter, Sater reappears in the real estate company of Bayrock. In an interview with a Russian magazine, he says, I became a managing director of Bayrock. We had an office at Trump Tower, one floor below Trump's. As the court transcripts about Sater's fraud are sealed, he can simply move on to business as usual. Banks and investors in Bayrock do not find out anything about his criminal past. When you are running a business secretly controlled by Russian mafia, you got a whole lot of problems. Not a lot of banks are going to want to lend to a business run by the Russian mafia. So your number one objective is going to be cover it up. Oberlander says that by keeping Sater's past a secret, Bayrock is committing a felony. It isn't legal to run a business where you hide the fact that the biggest owner, or one of the biggest owners, is a convicted mobster. The maximum jail term would be 30 years. So you're in really serious trouble. We are in possession of internal Bayrock emails from 2007. They show that the company itself is indeed aware of Sater's crimes. For example, the legal counsel writes about the risk that Felix's past will be uncovered. Furthermore, he wants Sater's name removed from the documents. Felix Sater goes far to keep his secret. A Bayrock employee tells the lawyer Oberlander that he is being threatened by Sater. He said, how many times Sater threatened to kill me? He threatened to stab me in the throat. If I ever talked, he threatened people all over the place at Bayrock if they ever talked. Oberlander tells us that he himself is being threatened by one of Sater's associates as well. The threat said, if you don't drop the case now, you'll regret it. An investor in a Bayrock project accuses the company of embezzlement. He swears that Sater has threatened to administer electrical shocks to his genitalia, to cut off his legs, and to leave his dead body in the trunk of his car. Of course, we are anxious to know how Felix Sater himself looks back on his past. We go to Port Washington, an hour's drive from New York. We have a couple of addresses where we might find Sater. I'm looking for Felix Sater. Do you know him? If anything would be, no, I don't know. If anything would be that way. That way? Yeah, the one down that way, yeah. Okay, thank All you. Right. One, two, one, eight, 
It's got to be down that way a little okay, bit. Okay, it has to be that side of the street then. On that side, right. Okay. Because that's the odd side. Okay, thank you. This is supposed to be one of Sater's business addresses, but the place looks closed. It's been a long time since the mailbox was last emptied. Back in New York, we do find an address for Bayrock. The company is no longer active, but is still registered to the former legal counsel, a Mr. Julius Schwartz. Julius Schwartz. But Schwartz is not in, and no one is willing to talk to us. Meanwhile, hearings are being conducted in Congress about the Russian interference in the presidential elections. The director of the FBI is making a statement. The congressmen want to know if he has information about Felix Sater. Director, are you aware of Felix Sater, a former Soviet official and advisor to the Trump Organization? I'm not going to comment on that. And Director, outside of Mr. Sater's relationship with the Trump Organization, are you aware that the FBI knew of Mr. Sater because of a $40 million stock fraud case that was prosecuted by the federal government? Same answer. What did Donald Trump know about Felix Sater's crimes and his position at Bayrock? If Trump has kept Sater's criminal past a secret, he is an accessory to fraud and deception, says Oberlander. If I can show that Donald Trump at some point knew the truth about the crimes at Bayrock, or even some of them, and kept on helping Bayrock's businesses while knowing that it has been engaged and is continuing to engage in crime, that's it. Goodbye and good luck. So, if Trump knew about the shady background of his business partners, that could have huge consequences. What information did Trump have anyway? In 2007, the New York Times publishes an article on Sater and his crimes. So from then on, Donald Trump has to have been aware of them. And he said, I'm gonna tell you this much, I guarantee you I'm going to get to the bottom of this really fast, really fast. Trump promises to get to the bottom of the whole story of Sater and Bayrock. A meeting is called. We discover that the meeting is attended by the Bayrock management, as well as virtually the entire Trump family. They were all coming. Trump, Trump Jr., Eric, Ivanka, every lawyer on the phone, they were all coming. But Donald Trump does not seem to intend to cut the ties to Bayrock. In fact, we can read that he uses the situation to demand more money for himself. Sater emails that Trump is happy with him. But in his external communications, Donald Trump acts as if he hardly knows anything of Sater's history, as becomes clear during a BBC interview. Why didn't you go to Felix Sater and say, you're connected with the mafia, you're fired. Well, first of all, we were not the developer there. That was a licensing deal. But uh, your name was on it. A very simple licensing deal. Much but your name's feelings. on it, Mr. Trump. Excuse me, but I don't know. You're telling me things that I don't even know about. He was connected with the mafia. Again, John, maybe you're thick, but when you have a signed contract, 
You can't in this country just break it. And by the way, John, I hate to do this, but I do have that big group of people waiting, so I have to. Okay, now hold on. One last question, please, sir. I have to leave. Um, Thank you. A few months later, Trump is again confronted with Sater. He has to give a statement under oath in a lawsuit about a real estate project. About how many times have you have you conversed with Mr. Sater? Over the years? Over the years, if you could ask. Not him. many. Not many. If he were sitting in the room right now, I, I really wouldn't know what he looked like. Okay. This time, Trump says he wouldn't even recognize Sater if he bumped into him in the street. That's strange, because after leaving Bayrock, Sater becomes one of Trump's advisors. He is given a business card from Trump's company, a telephone number, and an office close to that of Trump. It's an intriguing question. Why does Trump continue to do business with Sater and Bayrock? I think there's almost a thrill that he felt dealing with people who are willing to do things that others weren't willing to do, to act tough, to um, enjoy the suggestion that they're to be feared. Bayrock and Trump have ambitious $2 billion building plans. So they need investors. Investors who are willing to invest millions in the real estate projects. Who are these financiers? In a Bayrock presentation, we find this company, FL Group from Iceland. It turns out to be one of Bayrock's strategic partners. It turned out that FL Group uh, was at one point, 2006, the largest private equity investment firm uh, in Iceland, that it had a lot of connections to uh, the other big banks in Iceland. In the court transcripts, we can read that FL Group is backed by Russian investors that are said to be Vladimir Putin's supporters. There was uh, a number of allegations I heard that the FL Group was a major conduit for finance from Kazakhstan or from former Soviet Union. We do see FL Group making loans uh, to people connected to the Mogilevich Group. The records show that FL Group and Bayrock enter into an investment agreement. But we also read that there is a secret plan. FL and Bayrock are said to be planning a $250 million tax fraud together. All the partners have to approve the official agreement. Donald Trump also signs to indicate his approval. The truth is, it never would have closed if he didn't sign off on it. End of story. And I'm pretty certain that he knew that that was the case. Trump himself says he had no idea that this was a fraudulent transaction. I have concluded without any question that Donald Trump may be credibly charged with participating in a racketeering conspiracy based on what happened at Bayrock. Another strategic partner of Bayrock and Trump's comes up in the list of key investors. Alexander Moscovich, a Kazakh billionaire. Moscovich is a friend of Tafik Arif, managing director of Bayrock, another Kazakh. Moscovich is known to have been uh, running a lot of the chromium uh, uh, mining industry within Kazakhstan. And um, the Arif family was, of course, uh, then uh, running the processing 
of uh, chromium. We meet with Michael Byrd, a British investigative reporter. He has conducted an extensive investigation into Muscovitch and Arif. In the uh, late 90s and the early 2000s, when the Arif family developed a lot of hotels and went into the US real estate market, certainly um, it seems that, the, that Mashkovich needed someone there on the ground in New York to uh, be the public face of a lot of the uh, developments that, that were happening there. And Tevfik uh, very much fitted that role. The oligarch Muscovich is one of the owners of the Eurasian Resources Group, a Kazakh mining multinational. He is also a leader of the Jewish community. Everything what I do, what everything I did, and I hope what I will do, I do this from my heart. Because, because I believe what I do. This sounds good, but this Bayrock business partner, too, comes with a questionable reputation. Moscovich's company has been the subject of investigations into money laundering and corruption for years. In 2010, Moscovich and his friend Arif make negative headlines. Savoronadaki operasyonla ortaya çıkarılan fuhuş çetesinin liderinin Kazak asıllı milyarder iş adamı Tevfik Arif olduğu iddia edildi. Amerikalı ünlü iş adamı Donald Trump'ın da ortaklarında. It's June 28, 2010. A Turkish SWAT team enter a luxurious yacht in the port of Antalya. According to this Turkish police report, there are young Russian prostitutes on board that are said to be the victims of human trafficking. In the report, we find the names of Tevik Arif and Alexander Moskovich. Alexander Moskovich had asked his friend Tevik Arif to organize a party, and that party uh, involved uh, nine Russian models who were brought over to the yacht. Arif is supposedly using the sex party on the ship to close lucrative deals with foreign business partners. The Turkish police were investigating a sex trafficking scandal because what had happened in the earlier that year, in 2010, is that um, people close to Tevfik Arif had brought in girls as young as 15 from Russia to Turkey to their hotels. So, Tevik Arif is suspected of human trafficking of underage girls that are said to be prostituted at his hotels. Arif also rounds up the nine women on the ship. They are adults. The women refuse to give a statement. Alexander Moskovich, who had rented the yacht, manages to get out of the country. Certainly, it seems that he used his connections to, to get out of the country at that point. He didn't uh, face arrest, um, and neither did his colleagues. The only person who faced arrest was Tefik Arif. But Tefik Arif, founder of Bayrock, is acquitted. Only two of his associates are found guilty of human trafficking. How much money has Alexander Moskovich invested in Bayrock? We see he has all kinds of companies in the Netherlands. One of these companies, ERG, turns out to have a major branch in Amsterdam. 
we visit their office. Once inside, we are told that this is the financial heart of ERG, Muscovich's company. So, any payments to Bayrock may have been arranged through this office. Back in Washington, Congress is investigating Trump's Russian connections. One of the Democratic congressmen involved in the investigation is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. There needs to be a proper balance, and that proper balance has been lost uh, in the route of corporate power that my book documents. We attend a speech given by White House on a new book that he has written. It's about the corrupting influence of large corporations on politics. What is the danger of having a president holding ties to Russian oligarchs, even maybe involved in deals concerning money laundering and tax evasion? The um, danger is that it plays into a well-established Russian toolbox of foreign influence. One of the ways in which the Russian government manipulates governments around it, first the old Soviet republics and now Europe, your country, and in the last election, America, is to build a network of people whom they can control. And the traditional method is to find somebody who has uh, somewhat slippery business practices, an interest in politics or connections in politics, and to recruit them with basically bribery deals. Thank you so much. Do you think this ultimately will lead to his impeachment, Senator? There's a very significant chance of that. There's an awful lot of smoke around this investigation. Thank you. The Senator thinks that Trump is likely to go down, partly because of his shady business deals. We seem to have stumbled on another questionable business partner of Trump's, yet another Kazakh. And again, there is a Dutch connection. It's this man, Viktor Kropanov, former mayor of Almaty, a city in Kazakhstan with over a million inhabitants. The Kropanovs were collecting money to stiffen into Swiss bank accounts and hide it there. They are now fugitives from justice. Kropanov is on the Interpol International Wanted List. He is wanted for stealing hundreds of millions from Kazakhstan. Kropanov is said to have laundered part of that money by buying three apartments at Trump Soho in 2013 from Bayrock and Trump. We're dealing with very clever international money laundering criminals. And it turns out there's more going on with Kropanov, Bayrock and Trump. If we follow the money, we find out that as early as 2007, Kropanov set up a business in the Netherlands through frontmen. At the same time, Bayrock also sets up a mailbox company in Amsterdam, Bayrock BV. And then there was an overarching company, and that's where the money went. Kropanov and Bayrock also start a joint business in Amsterdam, Casbay BV as we can see from the act of incorporation. It was designed 
to get millions of dollars out of New York into Europe through Casbay. Casbay was just a conduit. Emails show that the Dutch structure was set up by the law firm then owned by Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani is the former mayor of New York and has been one of Trump's confidants for years. Donald Trump is our only hope for change. We see that Bayrock and Kropinov use a Dutch intermediary, a trust office. That office sets up a so-called mailbox company. This way, the trust office makes sure that no one finds out who the real owners are. Four trillion euros are handled by Dutch mailbox companies every year. Many of them through the trust sector. Trustkantoren zijn in Nederland aangesteld als poortwachter, poortwachter van een integere financiële sector. We visit DNB, the Dutch Central Bank. DNB has had great concerns about the Dutch trust office practices for several years, because more than 50% of those offices break the rules. Wij zien nog te vaak dat um, basale vereisten van uh, wie is mijn klant, waar komt het geld vandaan, wat is het doel van de structuur, hoe leg ik dat vast, wat zijn de transacties, zijn die ongebruikelijk, dat die basale processen onvoldoende op orde zijn. It's particularly Russians and Kazakhs who use Dutch mailbox companies and trust offices. They handle nearly 200 billion euros every year. Er staat nergens in de wet dat je zaken moet doen met uh, een, een politieke of een ex-politieke houten methoot uit Rusland of uit wat voor hoog risico land dan ook. Dat hoeft niet. Ja.